so I'm James. I'm a writer and artist. And I uh, do stuff with and think with and talk about and try and understand for myself as much as anyone else uh, what technology is, how it works, how we do stuff with it, and how it does stuff to us. Um, I'd also like to point out this is the second LiDAR intro of the day, but mine's an elephant, so it's better than Kevin's. Um, I do things like draw life-size outlines of military drones in city streets as a way of trying to understand how these kind of huge pieces of technology, which are mostly invisible, actually kind of relate to us in our everyday lives. Um, I build neural networks, which use weather forecasts to predict the results of elections, because I really want to understand how all these kind of crazy-sounding new technologies actually interact with our, our daily lives again. Last year, I built my own self-driving car. And because I don't entirely trust technology, I also designed a trap for it. And I do these things firstly because I find them to be kind of fascinating, but also because I think that when we talk about technology, uh, and we're mostly talking about ourselves and the way that we understand the world. And crucially, while it often sounds like science fiction, we're also mostly talking about the present. We're talking about what's happening right now. So here's a story about technology and, and what's happening right now. The title of the session is What is Real? And I've been thinking about a, lo a lot about this thing that Trump said in a press conference the other day. Um, he says varieties of this kind of thing a lot. This is the mood we're in. We kind of know it. We live in deeply strange times uh, when the President of the United States has to qualify himself with the word real, right? <laughs> just in case it all goes a little, uh, in case we, we actually completely lose faith in consensus reality. And I mention this because I, sometimes I don't think we pay enough attention to the things that our technological systems are trying to tell us, even when they're like right there in front of us. And I don't want this to be just like about the kind of Trumpian fake news stuff either, just to be clear. Um, this is one from the nice president, if you remember him. Um, this is something that Obama said uh, about things that were happening online just in the very last days of the last US election, uh, the one that he lost. Um, uh, and unlike kind of Trump's quote, the first quote, that one from Trump, was a kind of accusation. Uh, whereas Obama's is, 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 a, is a critique, and it, it points towards something that goes deeper than fake news, I think deeper than like this is all untrue, to a kind of confusion and fear and uncertainty that's really at the heart of a lot of our kind of technological and thus political processes right now. Obama was talking about this. Um, these are like your canonical fake news posts on Facebook, made-up stories that circulated hugely in the run-up to the election. In fact, you know, more than 50% of the kind of top 100 posts circulating on, on Facebook in the weeks before the election were kind of these entirely made-up news stories. And the weird thing was that, uh, again, an overwhelming number of those were coming from one single place. Uh, that place was a place called Velesh in Macedonia. Um, Velesh is a small industrial city um, uh, it turned out that a bunch of teenagers there had basically figured out how to game Facebook's algorithms with these explosive and completely made-up stories uh, in return for advertising revenue. And they did really well out of it. These kids made a kind of absolute fortune in, in a short amount of time. And then the media kind of spotted them and, and all descended on the place. And, um, uh, you know, discovered this and wrote all these pieces and talked a lot about how kind of irresponsible um, these kids were um, and, uh, and, sorry, uh, yeah, and talked about how really irresponsible these kids were and said that they were just kind of, it was the fault of these children that it was bringing down uh, kind of uh, democracy. 
Um, and, and, and in doing so, they really kind of missed, I think, what was a huge part of that particular story, um, which is the story of what was kind of happening um, in that part of the world at the time, was been happening in that part of the world for a while. So if you don't know Macedonia, um, its official name is the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. And the reason for that is it's been locked in a naming dispute for the last uh, kind of 20 years. So when the, after the Balkan Wars, Macedonia mostly got out kind of unscathed and was kind of for a while the great hope of kind of development within the region. Um, but then they decided to call themselves Macedonia, and the Greeks didn't like this, uh, because the Greeks have a big northern, uh, uh, northern province called Macedonia, and they thought if they let the Macedonians have this name, they'll want the country. So for 20 years, Macedonians have been locked in this border dispute, which meant they haven't been able to join the EU, they haven't been able to join the UN, they have to use this ridiculous name. And one of the results of this is that actually the country has slid kind of more and more towards a fairly authoritarian kind of nationalism, and has actually decided to kind of really own this naming dispute by essentially creating a bunch of fake monuments in, this, in the country. Uh, this is the statue that's officially called um, the Warrior, but everyone actually calls Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was definitely born uh, in northern Greece. Um, uh, and there's been this kind of ongoing, what they call a process of antiquization or classicization of the country, led by the ruling party to entirely falsify a national history for the country. So if you're a teenager growing up under these conditions, wouldn't you think it was totally reasonable to use these tools that you're always told are the future to spread this kind of storytelling around the world? And I tell that story because, for me, it's really, really important to remember that every time we hear one of these stories about technology changing our nature of truth or changing the nature of understanding, we need to remember that these things are always and utterly, totally engaged with actual histories and actual people in very real places. But of course, there's a corollary to that, which is that knowing about the history of a particular place isn't the only thing to know when people are actually being incentivized to share fake content, when that thing is what the kind of technology wants for itself. What you're happening on these kind of social media sites is that people are actually being incentivized to create vast amounts of kind of ridiculous face content because the algorithms will reward them for doing it. So what's happening here is that an algorithm values how long someone watches a piece of content. They don't care how long that person watches it. Um, uh, sorry, they don't care what, what it's saying, they care how much it's being watched. And so that both the content and the people watching it move slowly towards these more and more extreme positions. This is Walter Conkite, for example, talking seriously and realistically about climate change on television back in 1980. But because of the way we've designed these technological systems, this is what YouTube suggests that you should watch next. 38 years from beginning of talking about climate change to this being what the media uh, that most people are engaged with most of the time is being drawn and pushed towards, which feels like we're going significantly backwards. I actually spent quite a lot of last year looking at weird stuff on YouTube, uh, trying to kind of understand it. In particular, I was looking at stuff that seemed like it was coming from this emergent result, this kind of feedback loop between the incentives of making content and the kind of desires of people to look for new stuff. Um, in particular, I was looking at all these weird videos for children that are a kind of product of YouTube giving people money in return for keeping toddlers glued to screens. And believe me, the results are really, really not pretty. This is what I mean by a feedback loop. One of the really horrible things that happens is that there's so much weirdness within these kind of huge global networks is that the system shifts you slowly and slowly to a stranger and stranger place. 
That's how, by just following YouTube's only recommendations, not clicking anything, just letting autoplay, you can go from the cute video of the train to masturbating Mickey Mouse in, uh, in just a dozen steps. Right? And sorry to bring him in. And I'm, I've written and talked plenty before about the kind of weirdness and disturbing nature of specifically kids' stuff online. And you're welcome to go and search that if you, if you want to. But it's not entirely what I'm talking about today. Because what I'm really intrigued by is the deep weirdness and strangeness that's so apparent in something as innocuous as children's videos, but that's also replicated at kind of every level within our societies. Uh, and as it happens throughout, throughout us and through our social relationships, it also influences our politics in deeply weird ways. One of the weirdest things about these videos, right, which are all actually based on children's nursery rhymes, is that it's impossible to assign agency to them. Some of them feature like cute real people who are obviously just trying to make a buck, and some of them are completely insane. And it's really hard to tell the difference. Like, who's making them? Who's designing them? Is it real people? Is it a bot? Is it a troll? And what does it mean that we seem to be having trouble to even be able to tell the difference anymore? Because this is a feature of our political lives as well. The inability to know who's what and who's doing what, as you're probably aware, is doing some very strange stuff to our political processes. So, it was estimated that around one-fifth of all online debate around the 2016 US election campaign was completely automated systems, right? It was just actually uh, bots that had been pre-programmed to kind of share information online. That's not just the people who are actively interfering. That's like purely automated content, one-fifth of it. This building is the headquarters of something called the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. Um, and if you haven't heard of it, it's basically what's known as a troll farm. Um, it's full of people who may or may not be paid by the Russian government, but they're certainly paid to get involved in politics on the internet uh, on, in a huge degree. And you might have heard about Twitter and Facebook kind of banning accounts of people they think are trying to like, influence politics in some way. And this conversation is always about influence. But the weird thing is actually that um, I think a lot of that talk, and, and, and people who study this think a lot of that talk about influence is kind of misfounded. Most reports from kind of inside, from people who work inside this place, and frankly, from people who work inside other places, like um, SCL, who you might have heard of, who are kind of British military psyops campaign, who are involved in both uh, the Brexit campaign and, and the US elections under the name Cambridge Analytica. Both of those say publicly, pretty much, that it's actually almost impossible to change someone's mind. But what you can do is confuse the hell out of them, right? You can kind of like muddy the water. You can make these debates so complex and so difficult to understand that kind of everyone just throws up their hands, anyone sane anyway, kind of, and just steps back from it. And actually, the, the most damage you can do as a kind of, um, uh, as, as something wanting to, wanting to disrupt contemporary politics is not to come up from any kind of particular position, but just make kind of rational political debate so completely difficult. And again, it feels like these, the, the, Systems that we use every day are so complicit in this. This is actually a test that um, the New York Times posted this morning. You can go online and do it and ask you to try and tell the difference between Facebook posts made by, um, uh, by a allegedly fake Russian accounts and allegedly real accounts, so that even the New York Times has a Facebook saying, we just think these are the real ones. Uh, even they can't tell. Um, and I'm ashamed to admit that I really couldn't tell either. I completely flunked this test. Um, I, I spend literally all my time thinking about this stuff, and yet I was completely unable to tell uh, the difference um, between what, what, what is a legitimate public speech and is someone trying to kind of muddy the water by claiming to support one side in a campaign or making inflammatory statements on the other. 
The problem is, we're really, really easy to fool. Um, this is my favorite story about that. Um, so in the summer of 2015, this website, Ashley Madison, got hacked. If you've never heard of Ashley Madison, it's a dating site for people who wanted to have affairs. Uh, so it had this whole mystique around trying to persuade people to have kind of covert accounts, find someone to sleep with who wasn't their partner. Uh, hackers got into it, and they released uh, everything online. So a lot of people got some very, very, very awkward emails from their spouses. Uh, but, more, uh, but perhaps more interestingly is that they dug through, people dug through all this data to try and see what kind of interactions were actually happening on the site. 37 million accounts had been created. Uh, over the years. This has been running for like a decade. 37 million accounts have been created on this website. Turns out only 5 million of those accounts were created by women, and 95% of them had never logged on more than once. What they did, found, did find was that there were a couple of thousand of super active accounts that were posting hundreds, if not thousands, of messages today, every single day to those 32 million men who were desperate for an affair. Those were bots. There were millions and millions and millions of men trying to have an affair with bots for years. <laughs> and it's probably best, right, that that is where they spent their energies. <laughs> but at the same time, it says something really quite disturbing about our ability to know what it is that's going on and who it is that we're talking to. We're also in this very weird phase where we seem to be building things that are actually making this process much, much worse. What you're seeing here is the product of a neural network. A kind of, uh, it's, neural networks are kind of machine learning, what we used to call artificial intelligence. Um, but the thing is, and that's interesting to me is that uh, it's very, very, very unlike human intelligence. It's something very strange and new that we're building. But it can still do some quite smart things. This is a, this is a good example. Um, what's happening here is one of these neural networks has been shown thousands and thousands of photographs. They're actually a, a huge database of celebrities. So this, this machine intelligence has looked at thousands and thousands of these faces, and then it's asked, what does a face look like? And this is, over time, days and days and days, of really massive computers working away at this problem, trying to like, hallucinate new faces based on... Um, based on all the ones that they've seen before. These are, these are faces dreamed up by a machine of people who don't actually exist, which is kind of interesting and cool. Um, but what do you do when you can generate any face you like? Right? What if, instead of generating the face of someone who's never existed, you generate a different face for someone who does? So this is from a piece of academic research from a couple of years ago. And what you have on the left is an Obama impersonator on morning television. And on the right, you have video of Obama generated by one of these neural networks. And if I turn up the sound, you'll be able to hear what's going on. A lot of pauses and speak uh, in a very weird timbre. Uh, up and down, uh, down and up. Up, up, down, down. So, uh, President Barack Obama, uh, when you're giving a speech, uh, make sure you use... So we can make Obama say anything we want. That's, that's great, awesome. This is, this is the kind of amateur end of it, because what happens is you start with these kind of academic tools, but then they bleed back into the real world. Um, what happened last year is a group of people on Reddit, who are famously lovely people, uh, they basically took the code from that academic paper, and they made it so anyone can run it on their home computer. 
Um, and unfortunately, and this is probably not going to be a surprise at all, uh, this being the internet, most of what they used it on was pornography, and I'll leave that to your imagination, but swapping Trump and Putin's faces might be almost as sort of horrible. Um, there's a huge community on the internet optimizing these tools, and once again, they're going to feed back into YouTube and into the wider kind of political culture. And the situation I've been describing is only going to get weirder and more disturbing in the next few years. We're right on the verge of being pretty much completely unable to trust any visual media whatsoever. And just in case you think I'm veering off into science fiction territory, uh, because I told you I'm not really interested in, in crazy ideas about the future, I'm totally fascinated by the deeply crazy things that are happening right now, not science fiction, this is a few years old, and this is a product from Google. Uh, and what this is, this is a guy called Robert Elliott Smith, who actually turns out was an AI researcher, um, not for Google. But he was on holiday, and uh, his, his father-in-law took a couple of photos of him and his wife on holiday. Um, and uh, it captured these two photos, and because he had an Android phone, it uploads it to Google. Google, if you use these services, you'll know, they kind of do cool things with your photos. And one of the cool things they did was that they had an algorithm or some kind of basic machine intelligence running on this. And uh, it saw these two photos, and it saw well, there's two people, and one photo, one smiling, and one photo is the other smiling. And so what the algorithm did was that it made an entirely new photo in which both of them were smiling, which is this tiny, innocuous thing to do that seems like a sweet idea. But what you've done is you've created a moment in history that never occurred. And this is already running on all of your phones. I said that was simple, and that's a very simple example. But there's definitely a kind of increased complexity to what's happening now. And it's one that I feel really does threaten to put us kind of deeper and more weirdly into a kind of shade. One of the places that people really love to play around with this kind of advanced tech is in games. Um, like here, back in 1997, when IBM built a whole dedicated supercomputer just to beat this one poor guy who really loved chess. Um, you can see how pissed off he is, right? Like, it was, it was kind of a mean thing to do. Um, uh, there's a really interesting thing that happens here, actually. So when Kasparov gets beaten by Deep Blue, it's, it's this amazing moment, right, when you, when you have this kind of collision of... Um, uh, man versus machine, it was kind of built up into this kind of huge, extraordinary moment. Um, Kasparov goes away for a year, um, but then he actually comes back the next year, um, and he, he, he actually starts a new kind of chess. He says, okay, well, we now know that you can build a massive machine to beat me, right? But, uh, but hey, um, I've got this new thing called advanced chess, and in advanced chess, humans are allowed to use computers. Uh, human and computer teams can play together. And something really weird happens when that, when that occurs. Um, what happens is uh, a human playing with a weak computer will beat a regular human, right? But a human playing with a computer will also beat a really, really powerful computer working on its own. Right? A weaker computer will beat the more powerful computer when it's paired with the human. There's something that happens in those kind of combinations of intelligence that actually, for me, offers a kind of different way of thinking about the way we relate to these kind of technologies. Not seeing them as kind of these terrifying oppositions, but as something that we can actually kind of collaborate and work with. Or at least that seemed like a really good idea until we leveled up the kind of, the kind of computing power we were talking about. So fast forward to last year, and this situation has really changed. Um, this is, uh, if, if you didn't see it, this is the game between Lee Sedol uh, and Google's AlphaGo. So what's happened is 
we dispensed with chess. The machines were kind of like, um, they're definitely better at that game. Uh, but humans were cool, we've still got Go, right? Because Go is a fiendishly complicated game that um, has many, many, many more um, kind of different chances to it. Um, and we thought we'd be safe in Go for a while. And we have been safe in Go for almost 20 years until Google came along. Thanks, Google. And built an entirely new machine dedicated to winning at Go. And they did this through the kind of techno technologies of neural networks, machine learning, that were doing all that face generation before. Uh, when they set up this game, it was very unclear whether Google uh, and AlphaGo or Lisa Doll would win. There was a lot of doubt that the machines could kind of beat the computer in this way. Um, uh, and in fact, the first two games, though AlphaGo won them, were kind of, they were, they were reasonably close. There was, there was some interesting things going on. But in the third game, something really bonkers happened. Uh, and it's the move that's kind of looping over here. Uh, the machine suddenly, halfway through the go game, played a move that, that surprised everyone. And the, the commentators were actually just kind of like, whoa. They actually, they, they sit there in silence for a little while. Um, they're totally confused. They, they genuinely think the machine's made a mistake. They don't understand what's happened here. Um, and it actually takes like a kind of 10 more moves, like another half hour of play, before the humans in the room start to see what's happened and start to see that actually this was a completely extraordinary move, a completely inhuman move, a move that no human would have imagined um, and has absolutely completely crushed the game. And this move is now famous and extraordinary, but there's a really important difference between what happened in the games with Kasparov on chess and Deep Blue and what's happening here. Because with Deep Blue, you could look back through the system. You could look at the logs and you could understand fundamentally the way in which the machine had come to make that decision. It'd done a kind of deep search of all the possibilities and come to this conclusion. AlphaGo is a very different beast. It's a, it's a, it's a different kind of intelligence, a non-human intelligence, that actually we don't have the same understanding of the way in which it makes its decisions. It had played millions and millions of games against itself and had learned to play an entirely non-human style. And it will never be able to tell us why it decided to make this move. And that's the bit that I find very, very strange in this relationship, that we're starting to build machines whose operations and whose thinking we can't really kind of fully understand. And the machines are going to be able to go off and play their games kind of by themselves um, without, without us, essentially. Um, and, and, of course, you know why Google spends so much time and money on these machines, right? Um, it's because AlphaGo and, and, and Google Brain, the, the trust behind it, is going to be in charge of deciding what you watch on YouTube. Uh, so uh, with all the weird and emergent things that are going to come out of that, the loop will kind of be closed. And I thought I'd throw this one as well uh, as in. This is another research paper from Google, a recent one from last year. In this one, not content that the machines are capable of thinking things that we don't fully understand, uh, they decided to train two neural networks to be able to develop their own form of encryption. So they set up three computers, and they said, you have to talk to this one without a third one knowing. And after about a day of talking to each other, the computers developed a way to keep secrets, uh, both from the third computer and ultimately from us. Uh, the robots are learning to keep secrets from us, which sounds like a really great idea. Yes, <laughs> thanks. Um, so here's the thing I've been thinking about, which might be a kind of useful rule of thumb if you want something to kind of um, apply from some of this, because I know quite a few people in this room work in, work in tech and work in kind of projects. Um, most people know Asimov's laws of robotics, which are still super important, 
but also feel kind of quaint today, right? Um, I mean, because yes, absolutely, uh, a robot, any kind of machine, should not allow people to come to harm or, or the other things. Um, but what if the machine gets into politics, right? What if the machine believes people come to less harm under an authoritarian dictator? Actual harm feels less frightening right now than the possibility of living under fully automated fascism. So this is my kind of addendum to that list of things uh, that applies to things like AlphaGo, but it applies equally to things like YouTube recommendations or pretty much every single possible application of technology we could kind of be thinking about. Because as I say, I put this in for all of the people in the room who are working on any kind of technology at all, which is frankly everyone. Because as we've seen pretty, we've seen like in many talks over the last two days, I think, Pretty much anything we build, whether it's photo editing software to recommendation algorithms to you know, life forms on other planets, has the potential to change the world just as radically as that introduction of a genetically engineered species. Uh, we're, we're operating, as Kevin said this morning, at kind of software at the scale of the world. And very small changes will make very small things. And the processes behind these technologies, the drives behind them, aren't about to change anytime soon. Uh, so the, my urge kind of behind them is to Make them explicable. Make them things that we can discuss. Make them things that we can explain to one another so that we don't get lost in that kind of weird bot-led confusion that seems to be kind of doing very strange things to society right now. Before I finish, I'd like to make like this one more thing super clear. And I'd like to do it once again by looking at the way technology and politics and society are completely entangled, not just now, but really have always been. Right? Because none of this should be interpreted as an argument against the technology itself. Because technology has always been part of society, and very specifically has always been part of uh, democracy from, from its very origins. Um, this is one of my favorite things. Uh, this thing is called a claritarion. Um, I actually live in Athens, and if, you, if you're in Athens, you can go down to the ancient Agora Museum and you can see this thing. Um, this is a machine that stood in the center of the marketplace in ancient Athens in kind of 300 BC. Um, and before I tell the story, it's very important to always remember that history is far from perfect. <laughs> it's very, very far from perfect. And it's very important to point out that this machine only served the free men of the city, not the women and not the slaves. Um, and we can, of course, do hugely better. But it encodes certain principles that I think are worth bearing in mind. One of those things that's important is, is this question of visibility, right? This machine, I'll explain what it does in a minute, but this machine stood right in the middle of the kind of central square of the city. And it was available for anyone to come and explore and see and understand and watch functioning and ask questions about and have explained to them or explained to other people. It worked in public, right? And for me, all of these technologies that are so deeply engaged with our everyday lives should be as approachable as that thing. They should be machines that stand in the middle of the public square. Right, that we can actually have a kind of deeply personal and also societal communal relationship with. But it's also for me super important to understand what it did. Not because I think we should go back to using rocks as computers, as cool as that would be. Um, but I tell it because this stone computer, because that's what it was, was a critical part of the electoral system, was part of democracy itself. Weirdly, what it is, is essentially a lottery machine uh, in which all the citizens of the... Um, of the city, as I said, uh, only in fact the men, and we can do better. 
would come and they would bring their little identity chits, which are these little bronze cards, and they would insert them into the slots of the machine uh, every day. And then an official of the city would pour a set of colored balls into the top of the machine, and the order in which those balls came out would determine who had various kind of responsibilities in the city. And they used that for all major appointments across the city, right? For, for the, the ruling council, not just for juries, which is the only thing we use lotteries really for today, but for absolutely running the city. They had a genuinely radical democratic system. It's kind of way more extraordinary and, frankly, more, way more equitable, uh, in fact, than the one that we have today. Uh, sortition, this process is called, is actually you know, this kind of incredible zone of possibility and possible equality, as I say, if we could update it in certain ways. But my point is um, really that, that one of the lovely strands of thinking, I think, that's been running through a lot of the conversations we've been having is, is this one about time and what we can do with this. And th this stone is two and a half thousand years old, and we still don't seem to have learned its lesson. Right? And the lesson for me is that there's a concrete and causal relationship between the public understanding of technology and the stability and the equality of the democracies and societies that are built on top of it. And when we fail to understand how the things around us really work, when we fail to question them, when we fail to insist uh, that they are kind of explained to us where necessary, or when we insist on making them closed and proprietary and complex, uh, we do the same thing to our society. But when we open them, when we make them explicable, when we make them public, when we make them understandable, when we have to explain them to one another, when we critique and discuss them, when we make them more democratic, we also make ourselves and our societies more equal and democratic as well. Thank you very much. <laughs>